Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is my podcast book review of Superbugs, which is by Dr. Matthew McCarthy. And in this book review, we're going to be delving into this uh, rather concerning subject of antibiotic resistance. And I'm going to make the case to you that antibiotic resistance is another front in iatrogenic medicines losing war on disease. And you are going to want to go and check out the article that is linked below wherever you are listening to this podcast. In that article, I link to all the good stuff over there on LimitlessMindset.com that you may want to check out. And I'll suggest that you share this podcast around because we are at the present uh, here in March of 2020, as I'm recording this, we're, you know, all living within the specter of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the global pandemic. And at this point, I think everyone is probably getting pretty sick of hearing about COVID-19, it kind of sucks. We have to stay home to try to flatten the curve, right? And you may want to share this podcast around because everyone is kind of in this this morbid end of the world uh, type of mood. Everyone is curious about what are all the uh, civilization threatening uh, things that are lurking in the microscopic world at this point, but everyone is so sick of hearing about coronavirus. So you may want to share this around. And you also want to, as you're sharing it around, maybe you're sending it to people in Facebook messages or whatever, say, you know, hey, here's a podcast about kind of a doom and gloom subject, but, but there's hope. There's, there's real solutions that are out there to these type of civilization threatening issues, these type of uh, public health catastrophes that are looming on the horizon. There's solutions for people that are proactive, for the biohackers, and for the -the out-of-the-box thinkers. And then, you know, initiate some conversations based upon that sort of thing, as I think this podcast is going to shed the light on some interesting, some interesting things. Okay. So Superbugs is a well-written deep dive into the fascinating history of antibiotics and a glimpse into the frontline struggle of doctors and scientists versus some seriously nasty strains of infectious bacteria and fungus. The book is written by Dr. Matt McCarthy, a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Sorry, guys and gals. This is going to be another doom and gloom book review. Lately, I've been reviewing some books about the very troubling and very real threats to your life and well-being perpetuated by iatrogenic mainstream medicine and bad science. Taking these red pills about the monstrous betrayals of humanity committed by the institutions of science and medicine can be depressing. I understand. But importantly, the antidepressant is action. So in this book, 
uh, review, I will include some evidence-backed biohacks that you can and should implement to fortify yourself against this world so rife with microscopic villains. Okay, so let's get into the book. What is an antibiotic? From the book, quote, antibiotic uh, refers to any molecule produced by a microbe or by a human working in a laboratory that can be used in the treatment and prevention of bacterial infection. To qualify, it must either kill or inhibit the growth of at least one type of bacteria. Those that kill are bactericidal, and those that inhibit are bacteriostatic. And what is antibiotic resistance? So, in medical science's mission to make better mousetraps, they have inadvertently, yet so predictably, made better mice. And I'll quote from the book. A maxim in science is that antibiotic resistance comes at a fitness cost, meaning that when bacteria become impervious to antibiotics, they mutate into superbugs. They sacrifice something vital in return. So there's a trade-off when they become superbugs. That's the traditional thinking. Devoting resources to evasion leaves superbugs exhausted and unable to spread. It's a phenomena that infectious disease specialists count on. But it turns out this paradigm is changing. Superbugs have recently become more fit and more virulent. In other words, they're getting smarter and stronger. Not good, right? I quote from the book further. The indiscriminate use of antibiotics in animals has been one of the primary drivers of superbugs. Bacteria living within animals get exposed to our best drugs and learn how to avoid them. The spread of superbugs is driven largely by improper animal husbandry, poor sanitation, weak infection control policies, and overcrowding. That's why they often pop up in New Delhi and New York. Bringing a number of antibiotics to market simultaneously would be problematic, he explained, because resistance would occur in tandem. They were outfoxing us, and in some ways it felt like we were returning to a pre-antibiotic era, one in which a century of scientific progress had simply been erased. The United Nations held its first General Assembly meeting on drug resistance, drug-resistant bacteria. It was only the fourth time the General Assembly had taken up a medical issue. The others were in response to HIV, Ebola, and non-communicable disease. If we fail to address this problem quickly and comprehensively, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said at the meeting, antimicrobial Resistance will make providing high-quality universal health care coverage more difficult, if not impossible. 
I need to point out how absurd Ban Kai Moon's statement was. High quality universal healthcare is a total oxymoron. Universal, by which I think he means socialized, healthcare cannot be high quality. The meritocracy of the free market is what makes quality healthcare. If you know somebody who has recently been to a public hospital or received socialized healthcare, just ask them what the experience was like. They'll likely tell you it was downright awful. The protagonists in the book Superbugs are these extremely hardworking frontline doctors and brilliant scientists committed to defending the defenseless from virulent superbugs. What they have in common is that they work in private hospitals and institutions. None of them are unfireable government agency apparatchiks. I'll quote from the book again. My patients were increasingly whisked away to the operating room for surgical removal of gangrenous limbs because antibiotics were no longer effective. I looked on helplessly as a skin infection ravaged a young man's body, shutting down his organs one by one. In the bed next to him, a marine officer was battling, was battling necrotizing fasciitis, a flesh-eating disease that developed after he popped a pimple near his groin. Ew. As I broke the news to his daughter that he might never walk again, I fought off the urge to scream. Something was very wrong. Superbugs were evolving in ways we never expected, creating thousands of enzymes to chop up and destroy antibiotics. They were also developing molecular machinery known as efflux pumps to excrete antibiotics, rendering the drugs useless. I think I'll add a photo to this article of an efflux pump. Quote, with a single mutation, bacteria can spoil the chemist's recipe and delicately designed and a delicately designed antibiotic is ruined. Despite patients, dying patients uh, could be given something that simply doesn't work and a billion dollar investment evaporates. So one of the big questions that the book kind of addressed for me and that I'll hope to address here is, is profit the problem here? Quote, many companies simply gave up looking for antibiotics, and that has led to the troubling situation we find ourselves in today. The bacteria that cause deadly infections in humans have become quite adept at inactivating the drugs we use to treat them, and we may soon run out of options. The problem, ultimately, is that many antibiotics are not very profitable. So he's saying that the problem is profit. They're not profitable enough. With an antibiotic, however, the profit margins are narrow because of three characteristics. They're usually given in short courses. 
They're prescribed only when someone is sick, and sooner or later, even that terrific new antibiotic is going to develop drug resistance. Pharmaceutical research and development has the highest failure rate for new products of any industry, which raises important questions. How far should we go to incentivize the production of new drugs? Pfizer, Merck, Novartis, and Johnson & Johnson have gradually pulled funding from research and development or simply given up. As Fauci pointed out, it's a risky process and these companies are accountable to shareholders, not patients. In my book review of The Man Who Risked It All, you may want to go and check out that podcast, I explained that I don't have a problem with capitalism or with companies making money. The problem is the stock market, which without the state would not exist and thrive. Upon careful examination, the root of evil is almost always the state. Although Big Pharma really are evil fuckers. I'll quote from the book. In 2018, the president of Nostrum Pharmaceuticals, Nirmal Molier, I think I sent him a, a strongly worded tweet, actually. He told the Financial Times that he had an ethical obligation, an ethical obligation to raise the price of the antibiotic with a long, crazy name by 400%. The drug is one of the most commonly prescribed treatments for lower urinary tract infections. It's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, and its price jumped from four, $474 to more than $2,300 per bottle overnight. I think it's a moral requirement, Molier said, to make money when you can. But I heard time and again, antibiotics simply weren't profitable. One economist told me that a great way to squander 30 million is to invest in an antibiotic. And that wasn't going to change no matter the incentive. Beyond that, the regulatory framework and approval pathway had become so onerous that it could be difficult to get any antibiotic study off the ground. And the book sheds the light on some egregious corporate trickery. Allergan had transferred the patents for its blockbuster eye drug, Restasis, to the St. Regis Mohawk tribe in upstate New York, allowing the company to evoke tribal sovereign immunity to fend off patent challenges from generic drug, maker, drug makers. Manufacturers typically get 12 to 15 years of market exclusivity before generics can compete. Unless, unless the patent is transferred to an Indian reservation. <laughs> but if generic manufacturers don't bother 
prices can actually increase after the patent expires. Between 2013 and 2016, one in 10 antibiotics experienced a 90% price hike due to lack of competition. So we're seeing again that multiculturalism, it always creates a multi-legalism, which can have these detrimental downstream effects. He also discusses the cost of theory. GlaxoSmithKline, the London-based company, had moved away from antibiotic development, but it jumped aboard the genomic bandwagon and spent the next seven years and close to $100 million using genetic screens, which rely on a mix of robotic, automated detectors, and computational software to find new drugs. Between 1995 and 2001, nearly a half million compounds were screened by the GSK scientists, but only five emerged as genuine leads and none were useful in humans. In short, the program proved to be a massive failure. And you'll want to refer to the book Antifragile. And in Antifragile, he also discusses this dichotomy between practitioners and theorists, and that uh, prioritizing theory has this insane, egregious, astronomical societal cost. And that appears to be what uh, big pharma and the big institutions are learning very, very slowly. I also found this interesting. Apparently, synthetic organic chemistry is wildly expensive, and he describes it. Antibiotics that have been around for years can be rearranged to make them even stronger. Molecules are ripped open and split apart, and then they're fermented, ionized, reassembled, and purified. Okay, so I have got a solution to the profit issue because I'm not just a doom and gloom guy. I'm a solutions guy. So with this profit issue, where it seems like big pharma is just not interested in developing the new antibiotics that are needed. The government should force pharmaceutical companies to do it. I'd love it for Trump to come out in a press conference and say, Humanity, and I, I can't do a good Trump accent, sorry. I'd love for him to come out and say, humanity badly needs newer, better antibiotics. Big Pharma has ample resources to do it, but they haven't been. So we're going to make them do it. If we're going to make Mexico pay for the wall, we can make Big Pharma pay for new antibiotics. They have four years, an election cycle, to develop four innovative new antibiotics that actually work. If they don't do it, we'll take away their monopolies and special protections. We'll find them tens of billions. We'll make them hurt. In the book, the author has a couple of ineffective ideas for encouraging Big Pharma to make better antibiotics, like lowering their taxes, and here's the thing, we are light years away from a utopian libertarian society. 
using government force for good could do a lot to address antibiotic resistance. The more that I learn about Big Pharma, the more I believe that the devil is real. You'll want to see my article where I said, doubt the devil, doubt everything. It is astounding the pain and death that this industry perpetuates. Libertarians aren't going to like hearing this, but the purpose of the government and the law is to force people to be moral. And human beings were not naturally moral. Often, often we're not moral. We need some encouragement. So let's start demanding so let's start demanding that from Big Pharma. Instead of hoping that push-pull incentives are going to motivate these psychopathic corporations to start giving a damn about people. That's my take on that. The book also delves into history. I, I love history. It has a couple of interesting chapters delving into the history of antibiotics. Quote, in those days, German academia had close ties with the nascent pharmaceutical industry, and in contrast with other industrialized nations, universities often catered to the needs of the private sector. Curricula were tailored to workforce demands. Unlike other industries, pharmaceutical companies had minimal overhead, requiring little in the way of equipment and lab space. What really mattered was human capital. Scientists with the expertise to develop and discover drugs. And informed consent is described in depth in the book. It's actually kind of a theme of the book. Quote, the Nuremberg Code, a 10-point framework for conducting future experiments on human beings. On the witness stand, Professor Ivy read from a set of principles and rules set forth by the AMA for clinical trials. These included, one, that the individual upon whom the experiment was to be performed must give voluntary consent, and two, that the danger of the experiment must be previously investigated by animal experimentation, and three, that the experiment must have appropriate supervision. I'll make an important point. We are losing informed consent as a society, as a civilization, particularly in regards to vaccines. In many states and countries, you simply don't get a choice about whether you or your family gets vaccinated. Politicians who are owned by Big Pharma vote to remove philosophical and religious exemptions, and they don't inform you of the massive risks of vaccination. As the specter of COVID-19 looms over the world, I expect us to lose more health freedom. At some point, they are probably just going to say, we're forcing everyone to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Line up, people, and get your shots. I don't think they are going to respect my, my body, my, my, my choice. At that point, so my plan basically is just to bribe a doctor or nurse to give me the paperwork certification for the vaccinations and not the actual vaccines. 
there's this very thorough book that I also did a book review of, I linked to it, called At Our Wits End, about how civilization is devolving because in quote-unquote first world developed countries, our collective intelligence is dropping. And as a side effect, we are losing some of these basic moral human rights like informed consent. And I did a kind of a cool video once upon a time that you may want to check out where I said, freedom is unnatural, why human rights are antithetical to human nature. And I did a video, actually a philosophical rant in a military museum. And I have that linked in the article. You may want to go and check it out. Okay, the book talks about the placebo effect. Quote, Henry Beecher knew firsthand just how easy it was to manipulate patients. During World War II, he had served in military field hospitals in North Africa and Italy, where pain medications such as morphine could be hard to find. He noticed that nurses were able to calm injured soldiers with injections of saline when they were administered as if they were shots of morphine. A single infusion of salt water enabled young men to tolerate agonizing surgeries without anesthesia, and it introduced the young doctor to the power of the placebo effect, in which a patient's belief in treatment could be just as powerful as the drug itself. When he went to Harvard after the war, Beecher continued to study the placebo phenomena and argued for a new model of clinical research, one that called for randomization so that study subjects wouldn't know if they were receiving a real treatment like morphine or a sham like Saline. His insights ultimately contributed to our appreciation of the randomized controlled trial, the standard in human experimentation today. And the placebo effect is totally fascinating. You're going to want to check out my also very thorough book review of You Are the Placebo by Dr. Joe Dispenza, which is a real biohacker's, uh, a real appealing subject to the biohackers out there because it includes a bunch of actionable ways that you can yield the placebo effect. Okay, <laughs> let me give you a reason for hope here. Here's a vignette from the young life of a boy who went on to become a prominent doctor and scientist in the fight against infectious disease. After his mother died, his father was hit with a devastating hospital bill, something around $100,000 in today's money, he recalls. And there's no way we could have paid it. The small town doctors who treated his mother tore up the bill. They just forgave it. The physicians couldn't save Tom's mother, but they saved his father. <laughs> wow, that was a different America, wasn't it? Imagine that doctor saying, you know, you're our neighbor, we live together, we've got a sense of community solidarity, and we know that your wife just died, we know that you're grieving, we know that you have no way in hell that you can pay a $100,000 hospital bill, 
So we're just going to forgive it. You know, in today's America, they would, you know, basically, you know, uh, they would basically put a lawsuit on your soul and they would, you know, chase your descendants down to the ends of the world to, you know, extract their kidneys so that you could pay off your your onerous healthcare bill, right? Different America, different time, different moral system that existed. But that boy, he would grow up to become Dr. Tom Walsh. Dr. Tom Walsh, 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 Welsh, Walsh. <laughs> the colleague, the author's colleague, and actually a lot of the book is spent praising this guy. Quote, from hurricane relief to holiday coverage at the hospital, he never passed up a chance to volunteer. Before moving from the NIH to Cornell, the former altar boy and Eagle Scout had risen to the rank of captain in the U.S. Public Health Service, jumping at the chance to join the commissioned Corps Readiness Force to provide disaster relief uh, to everyone from post-Katrina, Louisiana, to lower Manhattan after 9-11. I've spent years observing the way Tom managed emergencies. The crashing patients, the frantic calls from doctors in far-flung far places, and wondered if I could muster the same response. Calm and deliberate, confident and reassuring. Tom has a quality that is as valuable as it is scarce, one that gets tossed around a lot but is truly remarkable when you find it. He is brave. He volunteers for things that I would never dream of doing, and he gets me to do things I might, I might not attempt otherwise. To many, Tom was an enigma, a man constantly on the move. But I had seen him in the quiet moments, agonizing over the management of a child on another continent, absorbing the pain of others, getting drugs to those most in need, carrying on the mission. And apparently there's a blog that documents his work. I link to it. It's called Mission from the Heart Appreciation and Support of Dr. Thomas J. J. Walsh. So I write and do these podcasts a lot about how we are, how badly we are screwed because of bad science and bad medicine. But I see great hope for, I see great reason for hope and optimism with ingenious doctors like Tom Walsh and Matt McCarthy on the mission to defend the defenseless. I just imagine how much good they could do if they had a bit more of an anti-establishmentarian streak. And I'll get into that a little bit later in this book review. He also describes the stresses of being a doctor. Physicians are stressed out and beat up. I tell them, what they really need is to feel normal again. They deserve sleep and a decent meal or an evening with friends. Maybe a glass of wine. They need things that a hospital cannot provide. The two qualities I've found in almost all successful physicians are toughness and 
kindness. He also describes the circuitous path to a clinical trial. The book follows the author's challenging task of conducting an antibiotic drug trial for a new antibiotic he calls Dalba. And I link to that study in case you are curious. It's on PubMed. So in the book, he explains what an institutional review board is. IRBs vary by hospital. There are currently about 3,000 in the United States, and they're composed of a diverse group of individuals to represent the broad interests and values of our society. Like a sequestered jury, they deliberate behind closed doors under a shroud of secrecy. IRBs are, in theory, an invaluable mechanism to protect vulnerable patients, but they can be a thorn in the side of impatient researchers like me. They decide who may be studied and how. They can vastly alter clinical trials or shut them down completely. The deeper I had gotten into the study, the more I came to appreciate a prior nemesis, the institutional review board. The IRB had been designed to protect patients, and that's exactly what it had done. And the book also describes the ideal of equipose. And that was a word I did not know before reading this book. I always love it when books teach me new words. Okay, equipose. He was referring to a state of uncertainty about the relative benefits of various treatments in a clinical trial. If equipose exists, no enrollee in a randomized study is knowingly given inferior treatment. The other problem one that I chose not to discuss with Erwin is that Equipose promotes the early termination of trials. If a data monitoring board believes that treatment A is better than treatment B, in the midst of a study, the board can be the board can shut it down, and that can compromise the results. Okay, let's read that definition one more time so we can understand. This cool new word that you can use to sound really, really smart. Okay, if equipose exists, then no enrollee in a randomized study is given inferior treatment. Okay, so let's use an example here. We're all hearing about this hydrochloroquine I believe is how it's pronounced, this drug that seems to be a wonderful, effective treatment of the COVID-19, right? And so all around the world, there's different studies that are starting, different hospitals are using the hydrochloroquine. And of course, if, you're, if you have COVID-19, if you have a serious case of it, if you're in the hospital, you want the very best treatment, right? But they might say, okay, we're going to put you in a hydrochloroquine study. And you'd be like, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. You know, I, I definitely want to recover. I don't want to die, right? But what, they, what they're going to do in these studies is they're going to give about half the people a placebo, 
more or less. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll, you know, it depends upon the proportion, but they'll give some of the people the hydrochloroquine, the real deal, the drug that seems to be curing the COVID-19, and about half the people, they're just going to give them a placebo. So that placebo is an inferior treatment. So in such a study, then equipose does not exist. So if you're a person who's dealing with a life-threatening problem, if you got a real health issue, if you're an enrollee in the study, this is actually a pretty smart question to ask. Because if you're the one who needs a cure or treatment, then you really want equipose. You really want the best thing, right? So that was a pretty smart question that someone posed to the author over the course of his study. Okay, science is too expensive, I think. Antibiotic studies were becoming too complicated and too expensive. Expensive. I had heard whispers that Allergan was on the verge of reallocating resources to other areas of research. Things such as Botox and eye disease. And I couldn't say that I blamed the company. A study from the London School of Economics and Political Science estimated that at discovery, the net present value of a new antibiotic was minus $50 million. Wow, that is something, isn't it? Okay, the book is rife with vignettes of iatrogenic medicine. It contains some glimpses of the author's experiences that confirm the suspicions of those who worry that mainstream medicine is largely iatrogenic, doing more harm than good. So he meets an opioid pain pill addict. When he stumbled into the ER, Soren was a full-blown addict. The first thing I noticed was that his right hand trembled when he ran his fingers through his thick, dark hair. He had a skin infection covering his left forearm, and his chiffon yellow eyes were barely open. His skin was gaunt, and a webbing of wine-colored blood vessels was visible just below his thin, pale skin. Soren looked like a vampire with a sunburn. That's a great description, isn't it, babe? Mm-hmm. Okay. The medical system had failed Soren, exposing him to whopping doses of narcotics after his surgery transforming him from an ambitious young man to a reclusive opiate addict. We will never fully atone for that tragedy. Since the year 2000, 200,000 Americans have died from overdoses related to prescription opiates, such as Oxycontin, and more than three quarters of the people who try heroin as Soren ultimately did, started with prescription painkillers. His path to addiction began in a hospital. The author also meets a 9-11 first responder. 
Donnie was one of more than 50,000 rescue workers potentially exposed to poisonous chemicals in the weeks that followed. In addition to cancer, many developed chronic, progressive, unrelenting physical and psychological syndromes that are largely untreatable. I'm getting this chemo drug, he added. Starts with a B. He was referring to bortezomib. Costs $3,000 a month, and they're covering it. Government's covering it. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. The book also describes healthcare-acquired infections. Hospitals are great places to pick up some of the nastiest and most persistent superbugs. Even before the corona apocalypse, I urge people to do everything in their power to avoid going to hospitals. I would not go unless my leg was about to fall off. Statism is, of course, the driving force behind the dehumanization of healthcare. Quote, Hospitals were quick to respond to this radical restructuring of financial incentives. The average length of stay for a patient dropped from 10 days in 1983 to just 5.1 days in 2013. Turnover increased and so did revenue. The faster patients are discharged, the shorter their stay, the faster the hospitals can admit another patient and take in another lump sum. So he's describing how hospitals, because because of the the way that the healthcare regulations have structured, the way that they do business, the hospitals make more money for getting people in and out faster as opposed to actually curing them. And so the the hospitals are kind of operating the same way that McDonald's does or that uh, whatever fast food, whatever awful fast food restaurant operates, where they want you in and out of their restaurant as quick as possible because they make their money on the turnover, not on providing any sort of a quality of service. He also writes... Clindamycin can be remarkably effective. It's been on the market for 50 years and is on the WHO's list of essential medicines, but it can also cause unfortunate side effects like C. diff diarrhea. While the drug was destroying some of the bacteria on George's skin, it was also wiping out a large swath of the good bacteria living in his colon. That cleared the way for Clostridium difficile to proliferate, producing a toxin that induced massive diarrhea. Ew. One of the more heart-wrenching chapters describes the author's father-in-law's life and death struggle with cancer. Quote, after two months of intensive chemo, the tumor had shrunk by 10%, and surgery seemed like a possibility. But the treatment was also hurting Bill's immune system, and we knew it was only a matter of time before some bacteria or fungus worked its way under his skin, causing an infection that could derail everything. Like bacteria, cancer cells can develop drug resistance, mutating in ways that neutralize and inactivate our best drugs. And the toxicity associated with 
Chemotherapy leaves some patients so ill they're unable to continue with treatment. An overnight doctor in my hospital is often called to the bedside of a vomiting cancer patient in urgent need of rehydration. He concludes, we're pushing patients further than we ever thought possible while offering them a slim chance at a cure. All of this cancer treatment that he's describing is quintessential iatrogenic medicine. And you are definitely going to want to check out the interview that I did with Mark Sloan, author of The Cancer Industry. And he has spent years and years and years really delving deep into iatrogenic mainstream cancer treatments. It, it really is kind of a, a horrifying industry that is hurting people so much more than it's helping people. So because cancer seems to touch all of our lives, touch our, our loved ones at some point, I urge you to check out that book as we discuss some real, some real solutions. Uh, we're not just black pilling. We're not just, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of silver lining around some of these, these harsh truths about the, the state of the healthcare and medical and science industries. Okay, the book also discusses antibiotic shortages. Between 2001 and 2013, there were 147 shortages of antibiotics, and doctors across the country resorted to second-class treatment options. Only four companies produced the active ingredient in penicillin. And those manufacturers based in China and Austria keep production levels low because the drug offers so little profit. Antibiotic shortages were a problem even in the best of times. So just imagine how bad they are going to get during the supply chain Armageddon that is now unfolding in the first quarter of 2020. The book discusses license. Apparently, these are a promising alternative to the antibiotics we now use. Quote, Lysins are enzymes that, that have evolved over a billion years to degrade bacterial cell walls, he told me. They're highly specific. There's a lysin for nearly every bacterium, and they're not subject to bacterial resistance. Unlike antibiotics, they don't weaken over time. Well, hallelujah, right? That sounds great. In a string of papers in top journals, he continued to show the potential of lysin therapy as an alternative to antibiotics. Fischetti convinced me that the notion of broad-spectrum bacterial warfare was becoming impractical. New dangers are appearing too quickly, and we can no longer afford to wait for the next miracle drug to wipe them out. The immunologist's work sends a clear signal. We need to attack bacteria one by one. It took a long time to get anyone from the industry to invest in our work. Fischetti said with a touch of amusement, we were focused on targeted killing, but Big Pharma doesn't want to hear that. They want broad spectrum. Companies passed on license 
figuring it wouldn't turn a profit. Boy, that's disappointing, isn't it? Infectious disease specialists have become a dying breed in some parts of the country, cast aside by modern medicine. Most doctors are now compensated based on the types and cost of procedures they perform, and infectious disease doctors don't really perform procedures. So that's disappointing. It sounds like the license have great promise in this serious problem, but the industry is just so resistant to any sort of change that there's no uh, investment being made and that the license, I wonder if you can buy license as a research chemical. You know, I may look around the internet and see if there's places where license can be purchased as not for human consumption type products. I'd be interested and I'll, I'll, I'll check that out and I'll link to it in my article for all the other people who might be curious. The book talks about Candida auris. Quote, the organism had been discovered in the ear of a 70-year-old Japanese woman in 2008 and promptly spread all over the globe. The pattern of distribution was unpredictable. An intensive care unit in the United Kingdom found the fungus in its reusable armpit thermometers. Ew, I would suggest not reusing armpit thermometers. <laughs> And it was now popping up in Manhattan. The bug was often resistant to antifungal treatments and mortality was skyrocketing. Before the coronavirus held the world in suspense, I worried that Candida auris would be the next civilization-threatening pandemic. It is a scary bug. Ever since I watched the classic movie Outbreak as a little guy, I became more and more convinced that the greatest threat to our species was not an errant asteroid, but disease pandemics. The Spanish flu killed so many because of the mass movements of troops during World War I, and thanks to globalism, we all need to fret a bit when an Ebola outbreak happens in some forlorn, godforsaken corner of Africa. I predict that the next apocalyptic pandemic that kills millions or billions will not be due to a single virus like COVID-19. I can foresee coronavirus overwhelming hospitals resulting in a supply chain Armageddon that renders populations bereft of antibiotics needed to treat more mundane infections. And with the healthcare system overwhelmed, we will see a resurgence of other strains of infectious bacteria. We'll see Ebola and we'll see God knows what else. Indeed, to get a little bit philosophical, we are living in history. History is not over, and history happens in cycles. There's a really great maxim that I hear repeated. Bad times make men strong. Strong men make good times. Good times make men weak, and weak men make bad times. And in 2020, we're now all reaping the bad fruits sown by weak men. Okay, <laughs> that's my philosophical point. Let's get 
practical. Let's discuss how to protect yourself from antibiotic-resistant infections. We're going to get into some biohacks here. First of all, red light therapy. There's not insignificant evidence that infrared light therapy is effective in treating antibiotic-resistant infections. There are several hundred scientific papers on the subject of red light therapy and antibiotic resistance, along with 11 clinical trials. From an article, light therapy prevails over antibiotic resistance. Quote, antimicrobial photodynamic therapy for infections has shown great promise for overcoming such infections in the laboratory, although the actual clinical applications thus remain quite limited. In the majority of clinical applications, the photosensitizer is applied topically to the infection, as is the case with acne, periodontitis, or non-healing ulcers. Upon irradiation with a specific wavelength of light, ideally non-thermal red light, the dye reacts with oxygen to form highly reactive oxygen molecules, which in turn eradicate bacteria such as fungi, viruses, and protozoa. Recent studies have shown that photodynamic therapy may eradicate bacterial infections caused by C. difficile, both in the cell culture and in living animals and humans. Japanese and Chinese studies have demonstrated infrared light in the 635 and 660 nanometer ranges along with sodium bicarbonate and methylene blue, which I have also tried. It turned my mouth really, really blue. It made me look like I had cannibalized a smurf. So they use methylene blue, sodium bicarbonate, and it was found to be effective in combating the villainous superbugs, including Candida auris. Quote, Candida auris is an emerging pathogen that has caused numerous severe infections in recent years and has therefore become a global concern of public health agencies. Most conventional antifungal agents, especially floconazole, have shown limited effects on this pathogen. New methods to restrict this pathogen are in urgent demand. And it concludes, antimicrobial photodynamic therapy has shown to be a promising technique against multiple pathogenic fungi. So I would urge you to go get a red light if you don't have one already. It might just save you from a really nasty case of Candida auris. And I link to my source, which is the red lights that are sold by Mark over at endaldisease.com. Red light therapy has a sweet natural antibiotic cofactor, honey. Yes, that's right. Honey is a natural antibiotic. 
Fun fact, right? And I'll quote from his book. Honey has long been known for its powerful antibiotic effects. Since ancient times, it has been used to treat superficial wounds such as burns, scrapes, or cuts. Today, the remarkable disinfectant ability of honey has been validated by scientific research. Honey is also antibacterial because it is hydroscopic, which means that it can draw moisture out of the environment and dehydrate bacteria. And its high sugar content and low pH can also prevent the microbes from growing. Disappointingly, the book Superbugs doesn't mention red light or photodynamic therapy at all. This would seem to confirm the stereotype that doctors, especially doctors ensconced in academia who get published by big mainstream New York publishers, this would seem to confirm the stereotype that they aren't interested in treatments outside of the big pharma paradigm. I know from my study of bad science, uh, reading books like Rigor Mortis, that in these overlapping statist fields of science and medicine, there's a tremendous disincentive against progress and innovation. Out-of-the-box thinking is met with ostracism. Reading this book, it would seem that mainstream doctors are only interested in the solutions to antibiotic resistance that can make big pharma billions of dollars. So the author would probably respond to my criticism. He'd probably say something like, yeah, red light therapy has potential, but there's not enough science done yet that we'd use to treat patients. So it didn't make it into the book. Well, the book thoroughly documents harm done by antibiotics. It thoroughly documents quite a bit of harm done by antibiotics. Red light does no harm. It has virtually no negative side effects. Considering the monstrous public health problems of antibiotic resistance, which is caused by antibiotics, shouldn't we be thinking beyond antibiotics? Next biohack for antibiotic resistant infections is colloidal silver. Medicinal silver is sometimes smeared as quackery by the mainstream media, but there are nearly 500 scientific papers about it published and five human clinical trials totaling over 360 people. And I'll summarize some of that. A recent American study notes that colloidal silver has a persistent antimicrobial activity and outperformed a control in skin cleansing. A 2017 Iranian study found the aqueous extract synthesized colloidal silver nanoparticles also showed considerable antifungal activity against antibiotic-resistant Candida albicans. An Indian animal study praises its antibacterial as well as anti-cancer activity and concludes, we strongly believed that biosynthesized silver nanoparticles will open a new direction towards various biomedical applications in the near future. Staphylococcus aureus, Staphylococcus epidermis, E. coli, and Pseudomonas 
ergoniosis. I'm probably mispronouncing those strains of bacteria. These strains were defeated by a 350 parts per million colloidal silver solution in a 2013 Polish study. And a recent Canadian paper on antibiotic-resistant MRSA is optimistic about these alternatives to antibiotics. Other more recently trialed non-antibiotic modalities such as antimicrobial photodynamic therapy, that's what I talked about before, and colloidal silver irrigation are showing promise. Silver is a powerful natural antiviral antibacterial agent. So we call our eating utensils silverware because in the past, those who could afford to preferred to eat with silver utensils because it disinfected food and supported the immunity of the diner. This is one of the reasons why silver became a valuable metal in the first place. An article on allnatural.com explains its antibacterial mechanism. The presence of colloidal silver near a virus, fungus, or bacterium, or any other single-celled pathogen disables its oxygen metabolism enzyme, its chemical lung, so to say. Within a few minutes, the pathogen suffocates and dies, and is cleared out of the body by the immune, lymphatic, and elimination symptoms. There's evidence that colloidal silver is better than pharmaceutical antibiotics. A quote from a naturalnews.com article. Colloidal silver is a natural broad-spectrum antiseptic that fights infection, subdues inflammation, and promotes healing. It can be taken by mouth, administered intravenously, or applied Topically, research on colloidal silver shows it to be an effective resource against infections and pathogens, yet very little is known about it by the general public or the medical profession. Prior to 1938, it was in common use by doctors. According to Alexander G. G. Schloss, PhD of John Hopkins University, Considerable scientific evidence has been published regarding the effectiveness of silver as an antiseptic against several hundred pathogenic organisms. So, I'm getting to my conclusion here. The author could have used his platform, this book, which will probably be read by some policymakers and purse-string pullers, he could have used the platform here to advocate for the NIH funding the badly needed science on red light therapy or antibiotic alternatives. But I suspect that would not have been great for Dr. McCarthy's career. So I gave the book four stars. The book was very well written and a page turner, which is always a pleasant surprise when reading a nonfiction book. The author illustrates the complicated science with creative metaphors and storytelling. Non-doctors and even non-college graduates like myself can read the book and understand the microscopic war we are losing to virulent antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And 
minus one star because this book is long on doom and gloom while lacking in solutions and in innovative thinking. At least I think. I think that there's a lot of potential with all these alternative types of treatments. The doctors, what you always hear from doctors, what you always hear from people that are kind of quote-unquote skeptics or people that are closer to these institutions, people that are closer to the epicenter of, of power, what you always hear them say is, oh, you know, there's these these alternative treatments, whether they're talking about cancer or whatever, they'll say, oh, there's these alternative treatments, but you know, there's just not enough, there's just not enough science. There's just not enough science. So we're gonna keep doing what we've been doing forever. We're gonna keep using the medicine that is often iatrogenic and often extremely expensive. So I'm saying, you know, if you're a person that has a platform, as I do, if you're a doctor who's going to write a book that's going to be written by some people, that's going to be read by some people who might be making decisions about where this kind of money is spent, is spent, let's try some new things. Let's try to get some funding for some of these alternatives that don't cause so much harm. That's my thoughts on that. And I look forward to hearing some feedback from everybody. I'd love to get some comments or get some response from people out there that have maybe struggled with the these types of infections and hear what you used, hear what worked. Again, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and I look forward to a continued conversation with you.